Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Friday, July 29th, 2022. Uh, in this week's episode, we will be discussing the continued sentencing for Parkland shooter Nicholas Cruz as well as the ongoing murder trial for the men accused of killing Kristen Smart and hiding her body over 25 years ago. And we'll take a quick look at news around the country, including the last two officers to be sentenced in the George Floyd's uh, murder case, Brittany Griner's testimony in a Russian court, and pending lawsuits against two social media platforms for their effects on children. Today, we are excited to be joined by Dr. Tracy Pearson, a trial and appellate lawyer and investigator for almost two decades, as well as a child welfare specialist and legal analyst that you may have seen on any number of media outlets. Welcome, Dr. Pearson. Hi, it's, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, before we get started, could you just tell us a little bit about your background and what your current practice is today? Sure. I actually am not practicing law. I went uh, back to school. I earned a doctorate in education uh, focused on organizational change and leadership with the idea that I would help people fix what was broken. My dissertation is on implicit bias in internal investigations. Uh, and so uh, I've really focused on trying to improve um, the outcomes for people who have to experience those types of things. And it has a, a broad range of applicability in law enforcement and a number of different areas. Um, and I have really been focused on trying to, to get out there and educate folks about the law and about uh, a whole lot of different things, uh, because I think more information is better. Absolutely. Well, we, we we love that you were having you on this week because we know that you have those insights. And so I'm sure everyone will he love hearing your thoughts 
on these cases because they are they are fascinating in their own right. So for, first, let's turn to the uh, sentencing hearing that's continuing in the Nicholas Cruz case, pardon me, out of uh, Broward County, Florida. Sentencing continues for Cruz after the 2018 Parkland, Florida shooting that left 17 dead and an additional 17 injured. Cruz pled guilty to 17 charges of murder and 17 charges of attempted murder in October of 2021, which is interesting because now all we're dealing with is the sentencing phase of the trial, not the actual guilt phase, and we'll get into that. Uh, This week, Broward County uh, Sheriff's Sergeant Raymond Beltran gave a vivid description of an attack he suffered at the hands of Cruz nine months after the Parkland shooting while Cruz was in custody. After telling Cruz to walk properly, in the video you can see Cruz kind of pacing around. Apparently, Beltran uh, tells him to walk properly. Beltran then alleges that Cruz flashed him middle fingers at him before charging him, resulting in the pair wrestling on the ground. And the video is very shocking if you get a chance to see it. Cruz's online history also came under scrutiny when it was revealed that he did research on mass shootings for months before the Parkland shooting. Prosecutors also read comments by Cruz online in which he made multiple references to his desire to kill people, including comments such as, I'm going to be a professional school shooter and refer to himself as a psychopath. So obviously, really disturbing and shocking evidence that was presented in that case. Dr. Pearson, um, typically in a trial, uh, you would not hear evidence of the defendant's conduct that occurred after the crime. Can you explain to us why why they're able to introduce that uh, by the prosecution in this case now, and how does that play into the idea of the factors in aggravation? Sure. Um, Law School 101. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, the Florida, uh, the state of Florida has this really elaborate statute that's been uh, challenged over the years when it comes to capital crimes. And when you look at it, it's fascinating because there are 16 aggravating factors, only, I think, uh, eight mitigating factors that are articulated. So you can see where that's headed. Um, But where uh, this comes into play is when you're you're talking about the various um, the various aggravating factors like um, that he could create a risk of death to a great many persons um, that uh, he attacked a law enforcement officer um, he that um, he was engaged in the commission of a felony um, you know these these are these are the types of things that they are they are pulling at they're pulling at little threads to try to to build a i use visuals a lot you know to build a little quilt here that will lay flat and allow them to uh, get the verdict that they're looking for which is uh, the death penalty and not uh, life in prison uh, without parole which would be if one juror disagreed with the death penalty um, so that's what we're looking at. And for me, I see I see that that incident a little bit differently in that, you know, so why did it happen? This kid's sitting, you know, in, in jail um, and he's awaiting his his final fate. Why did it happen? Um, when you look at the transcript from the interrogating officer, you will see that from the original offense so the original shooting, um, you will see someone who is. I think fairly disturbed. Just never mind the the incident itself. There's a number of things that happen in that transcript. Um, but he is asking the the sheriff who's interrogating him to kill him. Are you going to kill uh-huh. me? Will you kill me? Will you? You know, 
And I think that 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 he wants to die. Uh, I think that he was too cowardly, if you will, to die by cop, a suicide by cop uh, at the during the shooting. Um, and ultimately, he is, you know, was trying to create a circumstance where he might get shot, um, where he might end up dying. And um, unfortunately for him, that didn't happen, I guess. Um, and so now this is evidence that's being used in his trial. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's important to understand that this this phase of the trial <clears throat> is less about the crime, even though the crime is obviously taking a, a very important role in all of this, because it's important for the jurors to understand how heinous the crime was. But it's it's more about him as a person. And is this the type of person that we should levy the greatest kind of penalty that we have in this country to take a person's life on him? And so it's important for the jurors to understand who he was completely, even outside of those crimes, including that, hey, look at He's even continuing to commit acts of violence while he's still in custody. In fact, this person may hurt someone else down the line, even if you just put him in prison. Um, so that's important for them to understand. But you make an interesting point that I wasn't aware of. Perhaps, and it, it, you know, to help me understand this, this could maybe even play into his defense if it shows that he's, in fact, suicidal. Is that right? Yes. I, there's an interesting fact, though, when it comes to this case, and that is it appears, and I have to check it again because there's been a lot of filings in this case, obviously, um, but that that his defense team has withdrawn uh, the um, the mitigating factor notice for um, it looks like uh, that it was committed by the defendant under the influence of extreme uh, mental or emotional disturbance. Uh, which is yeah which is strange because when you look at the mitigating factors what you're sort of left with is the age of the defendant the evidence of any other factors in the defendant's background that would mitigate against the imposition of the death penalty um, and that him having no significant history of prior criminal activity before this offense um it's strange to me. It seems yeah. illogical to me because, it, look, I mean, it, it, wherever you fall on the ideological spectrum, you know, folks say guns kill people, you know, not 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 the other way around. Um, and when uh, you are looking at the other side of this, it is it's about mental health. You know, people who are mentally ill, you know, good people with guns are OK. Mentally ill people shouldn't have guns. But then what happens is somebody who is frankly have to be mentally ill to do this. Right. When you think about yeah. the, the details of this that we've heard um, in the trial, um, the things that, that were done to these kids and to, to these three adults, um, you have to be mentally ill. And so you're men you're mentally ill. And so what are we going to do? We're going to give you the death penalty. We're going to ask to give you the death penalty because you're mentally ill right not right. because you used a gun but because you're mentally ill and and it just it's this paradox that just doesn't make any sense to me and you know my my ideological spectrum is is fairly liberal i i think that you know um you shouldn't kill people uh, i don't right. think the government should kill people either and um you know for him to sit in in prison for the rest of his life and suffer is frankly more deserving because he didn't want to live based on that interrogation video and that transcript and um he was he was lonely um and there's there's a whole whole series of facts that you learn from from that interrogation uh, video but he this would be 
the most punishment that you could give this kid. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. It, not to get so kind of into the weeds philosophically about the death penalty, but um, I think part of it too is it's a way for that community to send a message, right? It, it obviously isn't going to, I don't think it's going to repair anyone's wounds. They've lost loved ones. Nothing will ever bring that back. But it's, I, I see it too as a way to send the message that this is the greatest type of crime that can be committed in our society. And and so therefore we're bringing the greatest type of punishment. And again, I we, we could go back and forth all yeah. day long on, on whether or not that brings any benefit at all. But it, it seems to me that this trial is, is very much about that. I mean, it, you had one of the most shocking acts of violence are, are, you know, by a citizen against other citizens that our country has seen. And it was, you know, so devastating and it, created an entire movement that came out of it. And I, I guess this might be the the period at the end of the sentence to say that we we then bring this greatest penalty or we're asking our community to then bring this greatest penalty against this person. But um Yeah, no, and I totally agree with that. I think that, yeah. you know, more needs to to be looked into when it comes to the weapons. The weapon it's it's just for for sake of, of conversation is you know, that bullet comes out of that barrel four times faster than a handgun. No. And no. It, it actually has a velocity faster than a, a jet can fly by feet per second. No. And so it is deadly. And and I understand folks like guns and, and, and like to shoot, and I'm not begrudging anybody that. But do you have to use this thing? Right. Uh, and right. does that have to be widely available? I'm actually glad that you you bring that up because so much of this talk about gun control, people get fixated on the on the weirdest things, and one of them is the caliber of of the bullets. And they talk about, oh, what do, you, do we, what do we need these different calibers? But as you point out, the caliber in the weapon that he used is actually low. It's it, it's similar to a 22 rifle, right? right? But the exit velocity from the muzzle is so high that that's why it causes such devastation and death. So it, I think it's important to at least educate ourselves about, about guns and what we're talking about, especially if we're going to get into discussions of gun control. But again, we're kind of in the weeds of we where totally we started. Do a whole yeah, show on that. <laughs> I know, I know, absolutely. Um, but uh, one of the other interesting things that's come out recently in this case that I wanted to ask you about was was his search history, and and I'm curious to f- get your thoughts on is this at all? Uh, I, I know why the prosecution's doing it, right? I mean, he's 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 essentially got hero worship for mass shooters. I mean, he's looking up other mass shootings. He's looking for videos on it. He's researching the, the shooters themselves. Um, he is searching for things like, how do you kill a person at 500 yards? He's he, It's obvious the planning, the premeditation, the obsession yes. with this stuff. Is there any way, though, that the defense has an argument or could use this search history to explain kind of his mental state and its deterioration? Absolutely. They could try to harness that and spin it, flip it, and and say that that he had long-standing mental illness it wasn't you know an isolated uh you know this is not the normal behavior of a normal person who's sitting there and researching this stuff unless you happen to appear on shows like this um so that we can talk about it 
but I think it is absolutely usable in that manner. Um, and I also think that, you know, I've been reading and hearing about folks uh, taking issue with it. I do think because of, of, of you know, monitoring people's uh, search history and, and whatnot. I, I, look, when you when you engage in, in a potential criminal act that hasn't been adjudicated yet, it's fair game. They're collecting evidence. And, and it's, you know, if reasonable suspicion of crime occurred, but, you know, you're gathering information to try to determine whether whether, in fact, it did occur um, and and what caused it and how to prosecute it and, you know, maybe even how to defend it. it it's there. It's totally viable. I think the question that I have, and it's something that keeps coming up in my conversations with folks about this case, is that this prejudicial probative value, you know, at what point are we are we appealing to the emotional um, piece of, of a juror's mind versus, you know, the uh, how does this establish some sort of aggravating factor that is objective? Because the jurors, when they go back to that room, they are they have to look at the evidence and they have to match the evidence up with the aggravating factors and the aggravating factors have to outweigh any mitigating factors. And it has to be objective. It can't be that's how I personally feel because it, we're not you're not big, making a decision based on your feelings. If you were, then we wouldn't be doing this for 16 weeks. So it's that's where my my concern is, is how much of this we saw early on. There was a lot of scuffle over uh, Nazi symbols, uh, you know, swastikas and, you know, whether that was going to be admissible or not. And this judge, for whatever reason, is taking things piece by piece. Um, and and that's another whole conversation is this yeah. judge. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad that you pointed that out, too, because something I keep thinking about is, you know, sometimes. The prosecutors get exactly what they ask for, and it may be, like you said, too much evidence that carries far more prejudicial weight than it does probative weight, and therefore they they might be cre creating appellate issues for themselves, which is the last thing they want in this type of a trial. When you know the whole country and world is watching, uh, then to have this whole thing maybe reversed on appeal. And I was thinking, and the defense has been laying the groundwork for that every step of the way. They're making all the objections that they can to just lay that groundwork for appeal. And one of the pieces that stood out to me to go with your point about, you know, uh, swastikas, what, what was the real probative value of that was they played the videotape of him after the shooting, ordering an, an icy, I think, at a sandwich shop uh, cl in close proximity to where the shooting took place. And it was offered for for no reason and the other than the prosecution said well it's important to understand how where he went and how he was arrested but really we all know the point was to show how kind of cavalier this man was uh afterwards and how he had just taken the lives of 17 people and it was devastating and you know he's he's composed enough to to order a, an icy and i think he even left a tip and i thought okay well you got that in prosecution but make sure this doesn't come around and and bite you in the in the tail is that kind of the point that you're making as well? Yes, because when you read the transcript uh, from his interrogation, there's some suggestion in there that that maybe he was disassociating at some point, that his brain shut down. He has a conversation with there's two things that happened that struck me. He has a conversation with his brother, Zach, who I think we're going to hear from um, as part of the, the defense case. And um, he he 
just the nature of the conversation and the details that they talk about it is if he isn't there he isn't all there Mm. in his head um just after that i think it's after that um he finally agrees to eat something because the sheriff keeps trying to get him to eat something and so he offers him pretzels and what happens is cruz says to the sheriff do you want some and 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 offers to share them with him and to me that was sort of like a jaw drop moment i was like wait a minute you're sitting here in a room after you've killed 17 people uh you know injured a bunch more scared the but jesus out of many many more than that right caused all this terror and you want to share pretzels with the guy who's interrogating you wow there's something off there yeah yeah and and so people listening or watching understand too when we're talking about his mental state there is no uh there the guilt phase is over so he's not trying to do a not guilty by reason of insanity defense here but it's just important for the jurors to understand his mental state to, to understand if if this person can be held accountable right like can they really be truly held accountable for their actions i.e putting them to death for their actions because of kind of maybe this disassociation that he was experiencing or had been experiencing for some time leading up to this is that right yes that's right what you're you're we're not looking at at uh guilty mind what we're looking at is um you know is there anything in his background or is there anything in the facts and circumstances surrounding what happened that would lead in essence a juror to want to give this person some mercy um right. to to give them uh, not not uh, some not forgiveness not benefit of the doubt it's it's it, to give them um some charity in this that that you know yeah you did a really horrific horrible awful thing but we're not going to take your life we're just going to make you sit in a cell for the next however long you live and and it's the be- only reason let's say is because of um there was just something wrong with the brain the way your brain was operating that day in other words it wasn't clear-minded intentional behavior that that you had rationalized yourself that wasn't impacted by other things yeah interesting well it's a it's a horrible case it's a tragic event in our history but it's also a fascinating uh, trial to watch as it unfolds and we'll continue to pay close attention to it Let's turn to another case, uh, now back on the West Coast, dealing with the Kristen Smart murder trial has been delayed for a second time in two weeks. The disappearance of, disappearance, pardon me, of the Cal Poly student Kristen Smart in 1996 shocked the local community. Her body was never found, but she was declared dead in 2002. Now Paul Flores faces first-degree murder charges, while his father, Ruben Flores, is charged as an accessory to the murder. Nearly 25 years after Smart's death, Paul and Ruben were arrested in 2021. Prosecutors allege that Paul Flores killed Smart in his dorm room before Ruben helped him hide the body. The ongoing murder trial has been paused again, however. This time, the trial was delayed because a juror couldn't attend due to an unexpected emergency. And instead of seating an alternate, the judge opted to postpone the trial. The trial was also delayed on July 19th for health reasons. This is not the first odd circumstance to happen in the case. Both men are being tried at the same time, but with different juries. And the trial was moved after a judge had uh, ruled that Paul and Ruben would not likely receive a fair trial in San Luis Obispo. Both of those 
really interesting moves, I think, uh, uh, by the judge and by the prosecution. But first, uh, Dr. Pearson, I wanted to talk to you about these delays. I, I mean, obviously, they sometimes happen in trials. Seems like they're happening a lot in this case. A lot of people are watching this case. Do you think it could affect the rhythm of the case for the prosecution? And how important is that? I think that it could affect the rhythm of the case. I think that it can be very important when you, and we've seen it in other trials, um, where they're presenting evidence, they're presenting evidence, and then there's a there's a stopping point. There's a delay for whatever reason, either planned or unplanned. And it gives the jurors time to to ruminate about what they've heard and 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 either in a good way or a bad way, depending on where the stopping point is. It's it's not as if it could be planned. It sounds like it sounds like it was something that was uh, unexpected. Um, the, the the there's some really interesting um, sort of facts around this. I mean, you know, California, as you know, is is a uh, interesting place when it comes to demographics and, and locales. And so, like, you know, I'm in Los Angeles, um, a massive place, right? Like almost 10 million people are in Los Angeles County. Not hard to pick a jury, really, um, you know, unless, of course, you're a Bronco driving down the street, you know, at slow speed. I mean, then it can get a little difficult because I have no watching. idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about, but, but unless you're watching on TV because, you know, the helicopters and stuff. Um, but uh, these two places, so, um, uh, you know, San Luis Obispo County, um, it's about 283,000 people live in that county. And so it's very, very small by comparison, and it would be very difficult to pick a, a jury in that town. Um, so they moved to Salinas, which is only 437,000 or so people. And so you've got two juries and and you don't want you know, you don't want to have to redo this um, right. because it's just so small. And it was such a these are really small, tight knit communities. And so you don't want to have to try to do this again without uh, it, it, given all the publicity around it. I mean, I know I've done stories on this already. I, I agree with you. And I think that's maybe part of the reason why the judge is taking a delay rather than seating another juror, um, because he knows this is going to be a very long trial and he doesn't want to lose any jurors. And I know that they've got several alternates. I can't remember right now how many, but you can run through alternates too, especially living in the time of COVID. You can, you can lose alternates um, and I'm not talking about people passing away. I'm talking about people just getting sick and they can't can't you know delay the trial that long. Uh, but the last thing you want as a as a as a judge, I know one of the things they fear is somehow getting it to a point in the trial where they run out of jurors and have to declare a mistrial and do this thing all over again. So I wonder if that's why the judge is kind of willing to take these little pauses here and there because he wants to make sure he saves all of his jurors. What do you think? I agree. And I think that because of these counties being so small, I mean, can you imagine trying to do that in Los Angeles County? Judges got to move, move, move. Yeah. I mean, you know, the things are backing up. So they they can take that time and do that there. Whereas here, that's not possible. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, Dr. Pearson, uh, I know you've been following this case closely. We have a cold case, 25 years old. We've got a no body case, never found her, no autopsy could be performed. We've got no eyewitnesses that I've heard of so far and very little forensic evidence. What is the prosecution going to need to do to bring home a conviction in this case? Um, I, I love cold cases, um, particularly because of the technology uh, aspect of this. Um, yeah. You know, she disappeared in 1996. That was the year I started college. Or I started my last year of college. 
Um, and so, you know, just a couple facts. Google was invented that year. Um, <laughs> there were 44 million people who had cell phones. There was wow. no cell tower in uh, San Luis Obispo. Um, and so you couldn't do the pings. You, you <laughs> didn't have the advantage of technology right. that we have today, like we saw in a recent case. So, right. um, and here, I not not to interrupt you, but you got me thinking. I imagine the proliferation of uh, uh, surveillance cameras not nearly as much as it, as it is now. No, you, you can't fact, walk down the street with nineteen cameras catching you now. But back then, who knows if they had any within a you know a few block radius. Absolutely. I mean, when I first moved to L.A., which was a few years ago, I mean, eight, four years ago, I remember watching people crossing the street using cardboard to try to shield themselves. And I didn't understand that at the time. I now do. Um, so that that we didn't have cameras everywhere and certainly not in that area. Um, and so the way I look at this case is it's a circumstantial evidence case. We don't have a body. So how do we prove she was dead? Well, we have a legal legally determination or legal determination of, of being declared dead. That happened on May 25th, 2002. So there's there's a judicial decision that she's she's now deceased. Um, and it, it, there because there's no direct evidence, we're dealing with circumstantial evidence, which means that it's evidence that when you draw a, a reasonable inference leads you to a fact. And so the way I think about those cases is that you're trying to build a layer cake and you use yeah. many different kinds of evidence to try to shore up that layer cake and make it dense so that it can't be knocked over. And the defense's job, and that was my job when I did defense work, was to poke holes in those layers to get it to fall like a Jenga puzzle. And here... Um, it's looking, honestly, I look at it and I think it looks pretty good, but uh, for the prosecution, I mean, you've got a, a person who who puts um, Miss Smart with uh, Paul Flores, uh, one of the last persons to see her alive, it appears, uh, her friend Cheryl Anderson. They're leaving a party. Um, uh, Miss Smart goes off with Paul Flores. She is seen as intoxicated that evening, passed out and can't stand on her own accord. Um, you have uh, a different kind of evidence. So you have forensic evidence where you've got four cadaver dogs who um, have all alerted to the smell of death in Paul Flores's um, uh, Cal Poly dorm room um, and specifically to his mattress. Um, you have folks who have made allegations against this man in the past with respect to him drugging and allegedly sexually assaulting them. So that information apparently is, is going to come in. Um, and then you have some additional forensics. You have an anthropologist who um, uh, saw a, 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 a disturbance in the soil underneath Ruben Flores, Paul Flores' father's uh, a home, uh, underneath a deck. Um, you have fibers that were never, that would not normally be seen in nature, certain colors like blue and, and red and, and white, which were all consistent with what Ms. Smart was wearing at the time. Um, the depth of this disturbance is about the size of what a casket would be. Um, there's a tenant who says that the plumber uh, was deprived access to a lock, this locked area where this disturbance was underneath this deck. Um, and, and there had been a flood there and that Mr. Ruben Flores had uh, said, no, I'll fix it myself, thanks. Um, but there was a neighbor who observed a trailer, trailer being backed up to this deck area um, late at night one night and that people who normally wouldn't be spending the night, his ex-wife and her new boyfriend, uh, had spent the night that evening. Um, and uh, you have 
additional information from law enforcement where the behavior of the defendant. So Paul Flores uh, is uh, he, he gives some story about why he has a black eye uh, right. that he was playing basketball and they go interview the friends and the friends are like, uh-uh, that didn't happen. And so now he changes his story. So we have an inconsistent statement um, to he bumped his head while he was working on his car. And then he abruptly leaves the interrogation room. And so that gets to guilty mind evidence. No person who was innocent would do that sort of behavior. So I think it looks pretty good, but I don't know. You know, I I don't I don't haven't seen the evidence. I don't know all the evidence. And I know where they're going to poke the holes. Uh, if that was the prosecution's closing argument, you would have convinced me. I, I thought that was pretty good the way you laid that all out. Um, you talk about building a layer cake. The, I, I use a much more graphic uh, example, but I say it's like a death of, by a thousand cuts, right? You're not going to, they're not going to get this with one home run kind of piece of evidence, but it's all these tiny pieces of evidence and you continue to add them up and put pile them together and that's where you get beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, a very good friend of mine um, from the prosecutor's office, his name's John Lewin, is a prosecutor here in LA who specializes in cold cases. And one of the ways he describes it, he deals with a lot of cases that are uh, you know, very old and oftentimes no body. And what he talks about is it's sometimes it's not so much of a who did it as much as it's no one else could have done it, but this person sitting here in court. And I think that's what's going to happen in this case is He's the last one with her, as you point out. He's the only one that's got the cadaver dogs uh, signaling to his room. His dad's the only one who's got a you know coffin-shaped hole in his backyard. I mean, you start putting it all together, and you go, "Oh, okay, it, it, no one else could have done this." And I think I I think they might be able to put this together. I do. My other thought is this: twenty-five years is a long time to keep your mouth shut, and I think that the floors is probably talked to someone in that 25-year period. And I think that someone finally got a, a conscience and came forward. And my my prediction, uh, we'll see if I'm right or wrong here, is that someone is going to testify that somebody said something about knowing where that girl ended up or how she died or where that body, not, not ultimately is, because I think they would have found it, but where it had been at one point. Um, so we'll see, but it's a fascinating case for, from a lawyer's perspective to see how they're going to put this all together. Uh, and we'll continue to watch it closely. We're going to do something a little bit different now. We're going to take a look at some cases that are making news around the country. And I just, uh, we'll talk about them briefly. And I just kind of want to get your hot take on some of these. So the last two of the four Minneapolis police officers indicted by a grand jury were sentenced this week for violating George Floyd's civil rights. Derek Chauvin pled guilty in December to using excessive force after pressing his knee to Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes. In February, jurors convicted Alexander King alongside Tuo Tao and Thomas Lane of violating Floyd's rights by denying him medical care. King was sentenced to three years and Tao to three and a half years in prison, and Lane was sentenced earlier to two and a half years. Do these sentences surprise you? Uh, too long, too short? What do you think? I think they're too short. Um, really? You know, they, I, I know, I, and that is federal sentencing guidelines aside. Okay, we know yeah. we get the little rubric and the, the whole thing. I, look, you're a police officer. You're seeing something happen that, that's that's wrong, right? You should know what's wrong and, and you should be able to stop them. And when I listened to what the judge said, which was um, 
you know, it was his second day on the job and, you know, right. he didn't know any better. And, uh, you know, the training was bad. Defense argued, no, you're a police officer. You should know what something wrong is. And if this person weren't a police officer who were do who was doing it, boy, you would stop them, wouldn't you? Yeah. You would do something. And so that badge meant something in that moment. And that needs to be punished. Yeah. You think it's going to have a chilling effect on law enforcement? You think other officers are watching this? And and, and part of their defense, as you pointed out, uh, and the judge highlighted, you know, they were following some orders, right? There's a chain of command in law enforcement, and there should be. And they were, Derek Chauvin was the lead officer or the most senior there, and he's telling them everything's fine, don't move. And they're following orders, right? Uh, you think that other officers around the country are watching this and going, now I don't, I don't know which way is up. Absolutely. I've actually talked to law enforcement colleagues and, and friends and and, you know, they they feel that they can't do their jobs anymore. But chain of command is part of the problem. I mean, airline industry went followed chain of command um, until they didn't anymore because there were problems that occurred and people had information or new information or should have challenged the, the captain and, and didn't. And so I think that what we need to do is see a rethinking of that. Um, because, you know, when you have chain of command, it, it, it also has to go in concert with responsibility for the conduct. You know, you have chain of command and, and responsibility for, for making the leadership decision. And uh, historically, we haven't seen that happen until this case. Um, and and it seems as if, you know, uh, Chauvin is, is, is paying the highest price, which he should. But the others participated in that. There were people that held the man down and helped restrain him, but they're going to get off with a few years. That just makes no sense. And then the guy who's holding back the bystanders, including the the colleague, the the um, former uh, or not former, but the ambulance, uh, you know, uh, paramedic uh, who is off duty, who's like, I know that he's he, he he's he's dying or is dead. Get me in there and wouldn't no. let her in there. No. Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's 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 a totally tragic story, and and I understand how holding them responsible. I, I also know people in law enforcement, and they're scratching their heads, going, you know, you're trying to control the crowd. It's a fluid situation. You've got people yelling at you. You're trying to do your best, but I agree with you that there has to be something done to kind of rethink how some of this is done to avoid a tragedy like this again. Now we're going to jump all the way across to the other side of the world to Moscow. WNBA star Brittany Griner has been detained in Russia since February after vape cartridges containing cannabis were found in her luggage. In a shocking development, the State Department announced that it had offered a prisoner swap of Griner along with former Marine Paul Whelan in exchange for the release of Victor Bout, an armed dealer known as the Merchant of Death. The Russians have been clear in saying, however, that no agreements have been finalized. What are your thoughts on this, Dr. Pearson? You know, I it wasn't until I really looked into the story that I developed a wholly different opinion. And I, I don't think that we should be trying to get Paul Whelan home. First of all, he was born <laughs> in Canada. Um, his, his, his U.S. Uh, citizenship is, is by naturalization. Um, his, his parents were British and they have Irish ancestry. So he's technically, he's American uh, by naturalization. He's Canadian by birth. He's also British by, 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 through his parents and Irish. And he's got this fascination with genealogy. But this is a guy who had a, a, a dishonorable or a misconduct. I'll say misconduct discharge from the Marine Corps um, he, uh, for larceny. Um, he uh, bragged about knowing an FSB agent 
uh, prior to going to uh, Russia, showed up with $80,000 in cash on himself going to a wedding. Um, and the, the most important thing is that the person they'd be exchanging for is a person who the U.S., um, arrested and convicted. Uh, it was through a sting by the DEA um, for uh, as part of a uh, what they would call a narco terrorist organization um, that this guy was going to be selling a massive quantity of weaponry um, to this this organization. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sure it'd be really helpful to get the guy who knows how to get the the weapons, the missiles, the the all the things that Russia might need to help continue to attack Ukraine home. And so I just think that it's probably a bad idea for a lot of reasons. And and I, you know, I respect Brittany Griner wanting to get home and and also standing up and saying, I'm not going without Whelan. But I'm not so sure she knows everything there is to know about Whelan. And, you know, it's not time to pull the McCain here on this because you need to get home. And what they're doing to you is unfair. It's utterly ridiculous the way that they've approached this. Yeah. I my thought I, I I appreciate all your points. My thought was, you know, she started to get so much media attention, and they, there was constant kind of talk and chatter about her. And then it started to leak into the celebrity world. And then you have people like LeBron James making comments about her. And the Russians are not stupid, and I think they realize who they've got and how valuable she may be from a PR perspective to the United States. And now, like you said, they're asking for the merchant of death in exchange. I, I they're they're playing three D chess here. Is my thought that they that it, it, I wonder if things would have turned out differently if people, uh, you know, especially celebrity types, had not been commenting on it so much, including I thought it was an interesting move, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts that the State Department announced this offer before it's even really accepted by the Russians. Yes. And I don't know why that happened. I can't explain that. But at the very beginning of this, there hadn't been a lot of of, uh, media attention on it. It was sort of a blip. And, And there was some discussion early on about don't talk about it. Don't make this a thing, a public thing, because of that rare, very reason it would it would, in essence, uh, escalate uh, Brittany Griner's value or increase it. And, and then Russia would be in a, a better bargaining position because this is what often happens. They arrest one of our people and then we do an exchange. Um, and, and this is sort of a, it's a stupid fact pattern uh, in my view that there's this, you know, she gets, she gets nicked for a couple of vape cartridges purportedly in her luggage and they call it drug trafficking. And, right. and that has to do with the average dose uh, that Russia assigns to that sort of drug and uh, and that she was using like 468 times or she had 468 times the average dose on her because it's like 0.0002 grams or something is what you would right. inhale. So it's 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 just it's one of these technical things that they then, you know, blew up to make right. an opportunity to try to, I think, get someone back. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's see what happens, right? I mean, we we may be finding out any day now if, if she's coming home or not. Okay, our last uh, kind of couple of cases for uh, the day is uh, a couple of really interesting cases involving parents suing social media platforms. First, there's two parents or, or a set of parents have sued TikTok over uh, after the blackout challenge, as it's called, leads to the death of two young girls. The parents of two girls who died after allegedly attempting this challenge popularized on the app are now suing the social media company TikTok. 
Lalani Walton, 8 of Temple, Texas, and Ariana Arroyo, 9 of Milwaukee, died last year, allegedly after attempting the challenge, which encouraged users to choke themselves until they passed out. Both victims accidentally hung themselves. This is just so tragic and, and awful and stupid and avoidable to me. But the complaint alleges that the company did not do enough to warn parents of the dangerous content being propagated pardon me by tiktok's algorithm tiktok contends that that they remain vigilant in user safety and that many of these quote-unquote challenges are originate outside of the app okay keeping that case in mind there's a similar lawsuit of parents who are alleging that instagram fueled their daughter's eating disorder and depression jennifer and benjamin martin of kentucky allege that instagram created the perfect storm of addiction for their now 19-year-old daughter, Alexandra Martin. The lawsuits filed against Meta, the parent company of both Facebook and Instagram, alleged the company needs to be held responsible for, and this is a quote from the lawsuit, causing and contributing to burgeoning mental health crisis perpetrated upon the children and teenagers of the United States. Specifically, the lawsuit alleges that Alexandra was repeatedly bombarded and exposed to content recommended and or made available to her by Meta, which increasingly included underweight models, unhealthy eating, and eating disorder content. All right, Dr. Pearson, I'll let you jump right in. What are your thoughts on these lawsuits? Are they on sound footing? No, they're not. I don't think that the Instagram or rather, you know, the Instagram meta one is on sound footing at all. Uh, you know, if that were the case, then if I had known this, I would have filed lawsuits against Vogue and Cosmopolitan and all sorts of magazines um, when I was a kid, um, because those were the, the people who were sending me the messages um, that were being picked up and then being, you know, uh, reinforced amongst my peers. No. So there's that. Um, no, you, there's a causation I, problem. Right. I, you're making me think of it. But I, again, I'm not trying to belittle eating disorders. And I and I, I know we have an epidemic of that that we're dealing with in this country. But I was thinking when I was a kid, there was, you know, Barbie dolls for girls and He-Man for boys. Neither one of them gave you a, a body image that was entirely attainable. But I, I, sorry to interrupt. I'll let you continue. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, I don't think Barbie's measurements have changed since, <laughs> since back then either. Um, so there's still opportunity, folks, um, assuming this goes through. Um, right. But uh, the, the TikTok one is a concerning one because it sort of it, it triggers for me. And I don't mean to use that word, but it triggers for me the, the, the cruise case, which is that if you have somebody who's out on, uh, you know, who's making sort of these, if you will, violent sort of terrible, dangerous sort of comments or, or putting this stuff out there. You ought to have somebody on your network who is making sure that that stuff isn't there. Um, but simultaneously, you also have to have parents who are supervising and, yeah. and that you know what your kid is doing at all times. And so I think there may be, um, I don't want to say contributory negligence there. I, I don't want to say that at all because obviously these people suffered immensely. But I, I just think that that TikTok bears a little bit more uh, responsibility here because it was on their network. It was clearly a problem as opposed to something like a, a, a visual image of somebody making someone feel like they need to look that way. Um, that That is that it was just different to me. Yeah, that it's, a, it, it's an interesting distinction you, that you make and, and, and may end up being the, the same one that the judges in those cases make. Um, I do know that we are suffering from this kind of mental health crisis amongst young people. I do not think these social media platforms are helping at all. I think they probably are hurting, 
But I wonder if these types of lawsuits are the way to solve it. And I wonder then what the actual platforms themselves can do to solve it. And those are a bunch of questions that I don't know if either one of us could answer. Um, but that is our show for this week. So Tracy, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find out more about you? Oh, gosh. Well, they can check out my website, tracyexplains.com. They can uh, follow me on Twitter, Tracy Explains, and on Instagram, same thing, Tracy Explains. And they can see me on definitely on Long Crime Trial Network every Tuesday, but I'm often on multiple days a week, and they can see me on other networks as well. Fantastic. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or check out my website, joshuaritter.com to see what I've been up to or if you're just looking for a lawyer. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or concerns you'd like us to address, tweet us your question with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. <laughs>